Once again, this morning we return in our studies in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter 2. And so I want to read several verses once again, words that we have read in recent weeks, but we will read again in preparation for what I'm going to be preaching. In many respects, having expounded this passage, we are giving some applications, some extended applications on the subject of marriage. And this grows out of the fact that it's been a long time since we've actually preached on this subject. And this is a foundational passage for that subject. Uh, Please follow along as I read, beginning with verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Once again, let's pray for the grace of God and understanding his word. Holy Father, we thank you that out of great love for the first man that you created, you gave him a wife. And we do thank you that in that state of innocence, you instituted this blessed institution of marriage. And we confess that due to our selfishness, due to our sin, we have ruined so often the very things that you have given for our blessing. And we pray that you would help us more and more to give back to your original design. Help us, Lord, especially in those areas where we fall short. We pray that even now, this morning, that you would be probing our hearts, especially as husbands, in terms of how we are to care for our wives. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. There are some marriages that hardly get off the ground before they are over. Hollywood marriages are famous for this. Take, for example, the marriage of Britney Spears and Jason Alexander. In the early hours of January 3rd of 2004, the childhood friends said, I do, in Las Vegas' infamous Little White Wedding Chapel, both clad in blue jeans and Brit in a a trucker's hat. And a mere 55 hours later, the once-pop princess's team had found out about this impulsive marriage, and they had the wedding annulled, claiming that Spears lacked understanding of her actions to the extent that she was incapable of agreeing to marriage. And then you could take the case of the marriage between Nicolas Cage and Rika Koike, which lasted all of four days. And probably, though, the short marriage that we remember the most was that of Chris Humphreys and Kim Kardashian. And it was the most 
almost immediate divorce announcement that was heard around the world. Exactly 72 days after broadcasting their lavish August 2011 wedding to the millions of viewers on the show that was dubbed Kim's Fairy Tale Wedding, a Kardashian event, 72 hours later, Kim Kardashian filed for divorce from her NBA star beau, citing irreconcilable differences. I said 75 hours, 72, 72 days. Anyway, real short. And then there are some marriages that don't even get off the ground right at the very beginning. Yesterday I read of an important, of, of a impatient Indian father, and this is in the country of Indian, India, and he was the father of the bride, and he changed plans abruptly when the man that was intending to marry his daughter didn't arrive at the wedding. And when the groom showed up four hours late to the wedding, it was scheduled for April 22nd of this year. This just happened, you see. The bride's father accused the man of being drunk, and he refused to allow the event to proceed. And instead, the bride's father, he found a suitable wedding guest right then and there on the spot and had his daughter marry that man instead. Well, the common thread in all of these nullified and aborted marriages, even these non-starter marriages, is that they don't conform to God's blueprint for marriage. And the blueprint for marriage is that which we have just read here in Matthew, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 2. And the first thing that we see in this account is God's observation of man, that it was not good for him to dwell alone. And this observation was followed by a resolve, a purpose, I will make a helper comparable to him. And as is matching opposite, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. And the account of Adam's need for a counterpart is then followed by an account of how God provided that counterpart. He provided a woman. And Adam's response was an outburst of astonishment. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this then is followed by Moses' inspired comment in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the picture of marriage that is given in these verses is a picture of, of two people that are very different one from another, and yet different in a way that they complement and they dovetail one another. And the manner in which they completed each other, this was a secret to their one flesh relationship, their deep unity that is described at the end of this chapter. And this oneness that develops when both husband and wife, they come to the altar and they surrender themselves in service of one another. Each of them has different strengths and each of them has different needs. And they are to respond to each other's needs. Now what I'd like you to do is turn with me again to the book of Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 5. Now in this passage, we've looked at this last time again, in this passage Paul, he depicts what we call agape love. Agape is one of the Greek words for love. It's somewhat distinct, the New Testament. The agape love that the husband is to have for his wife. And agape love, it manifests itself in actions not just feelings. In 1 Corinthians 13, and we're not going to turn there, but just to explain to you about this word, in that chapter, that description of love, love is this, love is that, 
this wonderful description, Paul uses verbs, not adjectives, a verbal form in each characteristic of love. And even some of the better, uh, better versions obscure this. For instance, one of them starts out, love is patient, love is kind. But throughout that whole description in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is using verb forms. And this is very significant because when God defines agape love, he uses verbs because agape love is something that you do more than something that you feel. And it is especially significant that here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls upon the husbands to imitate the love of Christ for his bride, the church. And notice how this love is described. It's not about what Christ feels for the church, although he certainly has great affection for the church. But instead, he describes what Christ does. It's an action, this agape love. And notice the verbs that are used, verses 25 and following. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved, that's a verb, the church, and gave himself for her, another verb, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Paul begins this description of Christ's love by telling us what Christ gave for his bride. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And again and again, it's not only this agape word used of describing something that's an action, a verb, but often it is used of giving something. In this passage, it is Christ's love of church and he gave Himself, that's what he gave. And this isn't the only place in which this word is used this way. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love. As Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if we were to take the time to go through all of the New Testament references to this kind of love, we would also notice that it's not only an action, but it is also motivated by by something that is very interesting. Its motive is the good of the person that, is, that, is, that receives it. And it's not, you see, motivated by something that it receives itself. It's not motivated by a tangible reward, whether money or marital intimacy or any other earthly reward. It isn't that you love your wife because of something you're supposed to get from her. Agape love instead focuses upon the need of the person that's loved, and it reaches out and meets that need. It is the opposite, therefore, of selfishness. The root cause of all marital strife, if you want to boil it all down to one thing, it is selfishness. Being absorbed, she needs to meet my need, and she's not my counterpart anymore. She's not my dream woman anymore, and so I'm going to divorce her. That's the opposite, you see, of this kind of love that's described in the New Testament. Agape love is that totally unselfish love that gives and keeps on giving without expecting anything in return. 
And it's the kind of love, this love, that prompted God the Father to give his son. He gave him up to the separation and even the damnation of the cross. It's the kind of love that drove the son to lay down his life, to give himself, you see, for you and for me. And notice, too, that this giving was purposeful. Jesus gave himself up for you and me in order to save us from our sins. And as Paul goes on to say in this passage, that he might eventually present us a glorious church without spot and without wrinkle. It has a purpose. It is meeting needs. It is responding to our desperate condition. Agape love, therefore, expresses itself in purposeful giving. It says, in effect, I see a need in you. Let me have the privilege of meeting that need. It's not preoccupied with what it gets in return. It is occupied, therefore, with what it gives and what the need is. And therefore, you see, even if it's rejected, it keeps on loving. And this is because it's focused not on what it gets, but on what the needs are of one's spouse. This is the kind of love that husbands are to manifest toward their wives. Now, as we have stressed in the outlines that are in the bulletins, agape love is directed by the knowledge of the needs of your spouse. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter calls upon husbands to dwell with their wives according to understanding. Significant word there. And for this to take place, husbands must know their wives. One of the greatest needs you see and one of the greatest reasons why needs are not being met, you see, in marriages is because of ignorance. As men, we don't understand our wives. Men and women have a great difficulty appreciating the value of each other's needs. And men especially, they tend to meet needs that they value more than the needs that their wife values. And some of these needs are set forth in Scripture. And some of them are set forth in natural revelation. We can see the differences between men and women when we study them. And of course, you need to study your own wife in particular. And in these sermons, I can't address all of the needs of every wife because I don't know the particular needs of every wife. I don't know each one of you in the same way that your husband knows you. But taking into account what we learn in the Bible and what we learn from natural revelation, the differences of men and women, I'm seeking to address six needs that are very common. In our last uh, sermon, we looked first of all at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and we began with what is really important to every Christian wife. And it is... And here's the first need that needs to be met. It is that of spiritual leadership. And this assumes that God has appointed the husband to be the spiritual head of the home. In Ephesians 5, to 23, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And how does he exercise this headship? How does he exercise this leadership? Well, at least in part, the answer to this question is found in the way that Jesus met the needs of his disciples. He was their spiritual leader. Now, what does this include? Well, in our sermon last time, we noted five different things. He instructs us. He prays for us. He provides an example for us. He nurtures us. He protects us. And these are the things, men, that you're to do for your wives. You're to instruct them, pray for them, provide an example for them. Nurture them and protect them. But then, secondly, having noted that that the need of spiritual leadership is there, there is, secondly, the need of meaningful uh, 
conversation. Now the one flesh relationship that's described in Genesis 2.24, this goes deeper than just a physical union. Implied is a oneness of mind and of heart. And the unity that we seek in marriage, this deep oneness in marriage, it cannot be separated from interchanging thoughts with one another. It cannot be separated from having communication, having conversations with one another. 85% of couples that come from marriage counseling say this, we can't communicate. And far more often, this is the complaint of wives rather than husbands. And men, you see, they don't seem to have a great need for conversation in the same way that women tend to. And on the other hand, women, they seem to enjoy conversation just for its own sake. And furthermore, the differences between men and women in this area, they go beyond the quantity of their talk. It extends also to the quality of the talk. When they get together, women, for luncheons, they delight to talk about personal things. They delight to talk about their feelings and about their fears and the like. And on the other hand, when men get to talk about anything, they just talk briefly about practical things like politics or fixing their cars or where's the best place to go fish or where, or about the football playoffs, that kind of thing. But they rarely talk about their thoughts, about their feelings. And it's because of the kinds of conversations that men, women have, the desire that they desire deeper, more intimate types of conversation, this takes more time to go through. And so, men, it is exceedingly important that you understand this. And this is why I'm taking the time to bend the nail over again on this issue of meaningful conversation. Before we go on, therefore, let me remind you the pointers that we gave in our last sermon. Block out time in your schedule to talk with your wife. Learn to listen. Sometimes repeat back so that she understands you that you know what she's just said. And furthermore, as you converse with your wife, seek to open up your heart. Not just talk to her about surface issues. Well, here I'm going to go out of the order. And having noted now these first two, the things that are in your outline, spiritual leadership and meaningful conversation, what I'm going to do is jump down to the fourth point that is in your outlines. And I'm doing this for sake of emphasis later on. The third thing is fourth in your outlines that needs to be met, and this is something we did not preach yet, has to do with the issue of financial support. In Proverbs 31, we read of the considerable financial latitude that the virtuous woman exercised. And we're not going to take the time to read through that chapter, but we might just note that the context is that of helping in the family business. She's kind of a merchant, you see. They have a store, obviously. They manufacture things. They sell things as a family. It's a family business. See, back in those days, they didn't have these factories where they had 10,000 people working in a factory. And we read in verse 16 of that chapter, she considers a field and buys it. And from her profit, she plants a vineyard. So she has the privilege even to make some very important financial decisions. In verse 24, we read she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Well, it's not my purpose to determine how these verses apply in the modern-day setting to a marketing economy, to mass productions and the like, or I'm not, not going to get into what circumstances a wife might somehow supplement the income of a family. We're not going to get into all that. But the overriding emphasis of Scripture is on the burden of the husband providing for the wife, for his family. In Genesis 3, we see this right off the bat. 
It's clear that just as the curse on the woman fell on her primary role of leading or rearing children, the curse on the husband, on the man, it fell on his duty as the provider of the home. This is where he's going to have pain. We read in verses 17 to 19, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And this assumes that it's the husband that's going to be the main provider. He's going to be the one that is out there getting blisters on his hands, plowing the field, and having to pull out thistles out of the ground. Well, even in the state of innocence, Eve was to be a help answering to Adam. And this assumes, at least in some way, it implies that there is some headship, some leadership here. It's assumed that Adam would bear the burden and the weight of providing for his family. Now, in many pagan countries, the burden is just the opposite, because women get abused. It's the women that do all the hard work. In many primitive countries and the tyrant lord husbands, they just live in indolence, and they feed on the industry of their, of their wives, they, but they're really slaves. And yet, sad to say, even in our culture, there are many men that don't provide for their families. And when professing believers behave this way, it's a reproach to the gospel. Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 refers to the role of mothers as homemakers. And in 1 Timothy 5, 8, Paul says of men who ought to be providers, if anybody does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he is denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. The stories abound of women who marry a man for money. And that's a bad motive to marry somebody, especially if he's a rich man. But in a very real sense, it is right in one sense for a woman to marry for money. It is right for her to count on her husband to provide money, at least a basic money to provide the living expenses for his family. And often this means hard years of schooling to prepare for a better career. It involves sometimes in getting a business started, working long hours, especially as you start up your own business. I just started reading an article this week about somebody that thinks we should only work four hours a day. I don't understand that. How anybody can get ahead in this world working four hours a day, because we're killing ourselves, he says, by working more than four hours a day. It's just not, it just doesn't work that way. You start a business, it's, it's not just eight hours. It's much more than that. But the fact that some men chase after riches and chase after dreams and become so preoccupied with it that they neglect everything else, this does not remove the basic responsibility of husbands to provide for their families. Well, I don't think that, to my knowledge, that this is a great problem in this church in terms of husbands providing for their families. And so I'm not going to spend any more time on that issue, but just to at least put it there, put a stake down, that this too is a third thing that is a need that must be met by husbands for their wives. And now I want to come in the fourth place to what is actually third in your outlines there. And this has to do with surpassing devotion. Supreme devotion belongs to the Lord. That's why I didn't use the word supreme devotion. But above all other human relationships... Our devotion is to be given to our wives. Your wife needs to know that apart from your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, she is first in your heart. She needs to know that she comes before your business. 
She comes before your parents. She comes before your children even. She comes before your hobbies. She comes before your sports and all these other things. She needs to know that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you delight in her more than in anything else. You are devoted to her. Second to Jesus, of course. Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me remind you that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, we read that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. She is to have first place among all other human relationships. Even her father, his father and mother now are not first. It's his wife. And this is assumed in what we read in here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. We read this verse in the last sermon that I preached here, but I want to just emphasize something I didn't emphasize then. This little phrase, giving honor. When you honor a person or thing, it means you attach high value to it. You attach high worth to that person or thing. It's important to you. We think highly of that person or thing, that when we honor that person or thing. Now previously in 1 Peter, a word from the same Greek word is translated precious. He speaks of the preciousness of something. In chapter 1, and we won't go into it. But we honor the flag. Why? Because it is a symbol of our country. And with all of its defects, we don't hate our country like some people seem to in our day. We love our country. We die for our country. We pray for our country. Our country is precious to us. And therefore, that symbol of our country, we honor. And therefore, as the flag is raised and the national anthem is played, we stand with our hand on our heart to express our honor of that symbol of the country that we love. Now, in symbolic ways, we should also honor our wives. And this is why a man opens the door for his wife. He honors her in this way. This is why he seats her when they're in public. This is why he never speaks negatively about her to others, running her down in order to make a point. Instead, he praises her, he honors her. And so with these various symbolic gestures, we honor our wives. But this honoring our wives, it needs to go even beyond these symbolic gestures. We must honor them by treating them as the most important person in the world. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21, Jesus says, Well, your treasure is there will your heart be also. In the Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus is stressing the fact that the kingdom of God is to be our treasure, not money. And among human relationships, though, this principle applies. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your wife needs to know that you are, that she is your chief earthly treasure. You remember Nathan's parable to David and referred to this a couple weeks ago. You remember how that poor man came in this parable. And the poor man had one poor little ewe lamb that he nourished tenderly just as one of his children. It drank from his cup. It lay in his bosom. It was precious to him. It was the one lamb. He, he wanted the rich man that had lots of lambs. 
And David and Nathan then told David, this is what Bathsheba was to Uriah. And this is what you took from Uriah. This is what you did. And he was making that point that this man, obviously, he had high honor for this woman. She was everything to him. That's the way our wives are to be for us. Now, the typical male syndrome is that of treating our wives with diminishing importance the more the wedding day fades away. Prior to the wedding, as men, we court our wives, we court our, the women with the zeal of Olympic-bound athletes. But after the wedding, she finds out that she's devoting more and more time for you. But you're devoting less and less of your heart and less and less of your energy to her. And when others, you see, ask you to fix something, maybe their car or maybe their house, you rush to meet that need. You run out and fix that something, that, that plumbing that needs to be done at that person's house. Meanwhile, something she's asked you to do for, for weeks, you don't do. Because that person, you see, has first place in your heart at that moment and not your wife. And more and more, she finds herself taking second place to everything else. And every time it happens... It's just like another nail in the coffin of your marriage. Now many husbands, they're shocked when their wives leave them for, quote, no reason, even after 20 or 30 years of marriage. And each man, he feels that he's provided everything that he, that he should for his wife. He gave her a house, gave her a car, gave her clothes. What, what is she so picky about? Why does she want more than those things? But you see, a woman needs more than those things. The supreme thing that she needs, dear men, this is this. She doesn't just need your things. Yes, you're to provide for her. She needs more. She needs your heart. She notices how your eyes light up when you talk about hunting or fishing or football. And she no longer senses that you're excited about her in the same way as you are about those other things. And over the years... I don't think that I have hurt my dear wife more than in any way than in this thing. The difficulty arises sometimes when there's something that competes for my affection and for my time. And it competes with the needs of my wife that are very important and need to be met. One of the times that I remember with a special shame as I reflect back upon our marriage was the time that led up to the birth of our first child. It was a time of great opportunity for me. I was preaching to 500 people on Sunday in Montfield, New Jersey. And I was to preach that Sunday. And uh, it was a tremendous opportunity. I was excited about it. And wouldn't you know, that's the time when my life began to have some contractions. And I sent out the signal to her that, well, i got to preach the sermon. And it, it, it was terrible to send that signal out to her. It hurt her. Well, obviously, I had to back down and rethink it and go to the hospital with her. And God gave us a beautiful girl, Cian. And yet I, I look back on that with, with shame every time I think about it. One, pop, one member of a popular cheerleading squad for an NFL football team expressed her disappointment in knowing that she was no longer the most important person in her husband's life. And she said this, even our dog is more important to him than I am. He comes home and plays with the dog. And then it's more of a, when's the dinner going to be ready attitude. 
And we give that signal, you see, to our wives so often. Without expressing it in words, a husband can communicate to his wife that, you see, other people or other activities are more important to him than his wife. Have you ever heard of golf widows? Whether it's golf, whether it's baseball, whether it's video games, whether it's politics, whether it's community activities, your wife will hurt, will feel the hurt if she senses that again and again and again that thing takes precedence or priority with you. And when she feels like she's only getting the cold leftovers after you gave your heart to what was something else, something within her begins to shrivel inside. And when she sees how your eyes light up when you talk about hunting or fishing or football, but she never senses anymore that your eyes light up when you speak to her or when you talk about her, she feels like a total failure as a wife. What did I do to make her make you feel this way. She feels like, well, maybe I'm not attractive anymore. And when she feels this way, it's devastating. Some time ago, Gary Smalley wrote a very helpful book. I wish it was still in print. If you are diligent enough, you can get it on the used market online. A book written by Gary Smalley entitled, If Only He Knew a valuable guide to knowing and understanding and loving your wife. And in this guide, he gives this, he relates this about his own marriage. He says, my own wife graphically illustrated this important concept to me during our fifth year of marriage. I arrived home for lunch to find her standing quietly at the kitchen sink, not even interested in talking when I tried to make conversation. In a moment of insight, I perceived that I was in hot water. I remembered her coolness toward me during the previous few days, which I had mistakenly attributed to some sort of hormonal change. Is there anything wrong between us, I asked her. It doesn't matter. You wouldn't understand anyway, she said. Funny thing, I'm losing my desire to go back to work right now. I can see there are some real problems here. Wouldn't you like to talk about it? I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. Well, even if I told you, either you wouldn't understand or you wouldn't change, so what's the use? Let's don't talk about it. It's too painful. It it discourages me, and it disappoints me when you say that you're going to do something and then you don't. But I gently resisted. I told her that I wished that she would share it with me and that I just didn't understand. And finally, she was able to verbalize what actions during the past five years had driven an impenetrable wedge between us and were causing me to violate an important biblical principle. You'd really rather be at work or with your friends or counseling people rather than spending time with me. Obviously, he's a counselor. I asked her to explain. Well, if somebody calls you when we have plans, you're liable to say, well, let me check with my wife and see if I can't postpone our plans. I just can't believe you would do that to me over and over again. I explained how it was easier for me to turn her down than to say no to other people. But what about when I cook a special dinner, sometimes even with candlelight? You'll come home or call and say you've had to make other plans. And you go off somewhere with other people as if I don't even exist. It's if I didn't even mean anything that I've gone to extra special effort for you. I don't care anymore, she continued. 
I don't even want to do these special things for you. I've been disappointed so many times, I just can't handle it emotionally. Well, she made me realize that although I always had time for somebody else in need of counseling, I made no effort to spend time with her. And when I did spend time with her, she said I didn't have the same concentration or excitement about being with her. And I listened as she revealed her innermost feelings for several hours. I really didn't know what to do, and I wasn't sure that I'd be able to change. But I could understand her complaints. I had neglected her. However, when I agreed with her, she was unresponsive. And I could tell that she'd given up. Then he goes on to say later on, Could you forgive me for the way that I have treated you? I'm willing to change. I really plan on changing. Sure, I've heard that song before, she said skeptically. Well, I didn't know how long it would take for me to reform. But I knew the next time someone called right before dinner, I would have to ask, is this an emergency? Or can we work it out tomorrow? And I had to show her I really meant business about meeting her needs first. I wanted to tell her that she was the most important person in my life. I really wanted to feel that way. At first, I didn't have those feelings, but I wanted to have them. And as I tried to make her more important to me than anyone else, I soon began to feel that she was top priority. Feelings follow thoughts and actions. Remember, agape love, it's actions. Feelings follow actions. In other words, the warm inner feeling that I have for Norma began to burn after I placed the queen's crown upon her head. I've taken you the time to read that lengthy account to make a point. This afternoon, talk with your wife. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until the suitcase is packed and you find a note on your bed saying that she's gone. Even now, ask her hard questions. The hard questions like, do you feel that you are the most important person in my life? Do you feel that way? Do I, do I show you that? That's a hard question to ask. Sometimes we have to have these hard conversations. Are there activities in my life that seem to be more important than, than you are? Are there any ways that I can show you that you are the most important person to me? And then do more than just talk about it. Gary Smalley's account, he went into how he had talked a lot, you see, but he didn't do anything. And so she was skeptical that anything would ever change. And we need to do more than just talk. We, agape love is, is action. Show her how important she is by spending time with her. Tell her how important she is to you. And I know that she might be tempted to doubt you for a while. She might think that you're just doing this now because you just heard a sermon about it. And Pastor Sarver may check out our, our marriage sometime and ask us how, how I'm doing here. So say to her, well, honey, I, I, I know that I just heard this sermon. But I want you to know how much you mean to me. And sometimes I just keep it all bottled up inside. I don't get it out and I don't tell you. And I don't show it very well. But I want you to know, dear, that you are the most important person in the whole world. You were special to me. I tell her the same thing with a bouquet of flowers once in a while. Or maybe a small carefully chosen gift. Leave her a little note before you go to work, perhaps. Plan a special date night. Plan a special getaway. There's all kinds of ways in which you can let her know that she's important to you. 
especially after you have relegated her for a long time as to second place. She needs more than just promises that you're going to do something better. She needs to see that you are going to do something about it. So do whatever it takes. And if she's skeptical at first, just let her see you climb mountains for a while. And then she'll know at last that she has first place in your heart. Well, our God treats us as being exceedingly important to him. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty, Zephaniah says. He will save you. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. Among all the people on the earth, God's bride is first to him. And you need to show the wife of your youth that just as there was no one else on earth who has filled your heart at the beginning when you were first married, as you were excited in those first days, there's nobody on earth even now that there's no activity on earth that excites you that means more to you than your wife does to you even now. God is excited over us. He, he thinks of us. He rejoices over us with joy, that passage says. He joys over us with singing. He is excited over us. He loves us. And he shows us that love in so many ways. And this is what we need to do with our wives. Well, I want to get on to a, the fifth point that's in your outline. I think we might have to finish this up at some other time, but I want to just at least get started. There needs to be also, fifthly, expressed affection. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. Prior to this chapter, in chapter 24, we have the beautiful story of the way in which God directed Abraham's servant to go back to Abraham's homeland and find a wife for his son Isaac. And the chapter, that is chapter Genesis 24, it ends by telling us that Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, she became his wife, and then it uses these words, and he loved her. And then it says, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's the way chapter 24 ends. But then later on, coming to chapter 26, during a time of famine, Isaac pitched his tent in the territory of Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And because Rebekah was very beautiful, Isaac was afraid that they would kill him in order to get his wife. So he told them that he was, or she was his sister, which was a lie. She was related, but she was not his sister. And then in chapter 26 and verse 8, and this is what I want you to notice with me. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Now it's important that we notice that what Abimelech saw, it was not something that he saw by lifting the flap of Isaac's tent and seeing something that only belonged in private. That's not what he saw. It wasn't some kind of a, a, a bedroom scene. It was a semi-public display of affection that could be seen by just looking out of his window. That's what he saw. And this incident, it illustrates the place in marriage for expressions of affection 
that are non-sexual in nature. And maybe in our next sermon we can go over some other examples, but I'm just going to leave you with this particular one that we just looked at. So by expressed affection, and this is what we need to give our wives, we are referring to non-sexual physical expressions of affection. Caressing them, cuddling, snuggling, hugging, holding hands, sitting close together. These are ways in which we express affection. Touching is one of the most natural acts in the world. It's a human need that needs not, must not be ignored. At our birth, this is the first thing that bonded us to our mothers. We cuddled in her arms. We got emotional support, you see, that way, right from the moment we came out of our, the womb of our mother. And now that we're adults, this need has not gone away. And especially in a marriage relationship, there was a deep need, especially on the part of a wife, for the warmth, the reassurance, and the intimacy of non-sexual touching. Often when a woman craves the kind of intimacy that belongs in marriage, what she's really craving is the satisfaction of this deep need. The thing that tempts her to go outside her marriage to get what she's not getting is not that she's looking for the extra fun. It's just that she's looking for this, this kind of affection that we're talking about. And she's missing this in, in her marriage. Webster's Dictionary defines caress, the word caress, as an act of an endearment. This is what Isaac was doing. He was caressing. It was an act of an endearment, a tender or loving embrace, a touch, to touch or stroke or pat tenderly, lovingly or softly. This is what it's talking about. Writing about former President Eisenhower and his wife, Betty Ford. Um, one author writes this, Betty, Betty Ford, she says this, as she reflects upon President Eisenhower, who evidently she knew. What stands out most in my memory about Mamie, that was President Eisenhower's wife, what stands about most about Mamie and Ike is their affection for each other. I document my observation with photographs. So many pictures of them look unposed as if they've been caught in the act of touching. She recalls what Mamie, then widowed and 80 years old, said about her husband's wonderful hands. Every knuckle, she said, was broken from football or whatever. But I always felt in all the years that we were married that I could grab onto them when I felt sick or worried. And nothing was ever going to happen to me. Well, if I were to have more time, and perhaps in our next sermon we can go into this, I could give you a more extended example of how this was missing in a marriage and how it led to tragic results. But in a very real sense, the whole point that I'm trying to make, and we want to come to a conclusion here, is that this kind of affection is the cement of a marriage. It says to your wife, you are really important to me. You are precious to me. It says, I'm concerned about the problems you face. And I'm with you. And I won't allow anything to happen to you. You are mine. And you need to understand that the typical wife, there's hardly enough of this kind of affection. And most likely this is true of your wife. Talk with her. Ask her to forgive you if you haven't shown her this kind of affection. Tell her that you want to show her this kind of affection. And if you struggle with being affectionate, 
Let me press it upon you that your Savior was affectionate, and you're to be like Jesus. Yes, it's true that he never had a physical wife. He has a spiritual wife that he's very affectionate with. He's exceedingly affectionate with the bride, the church. But also, in a manner that is consistent perfectly with his purity, he showed affection while he was here upon earth to people that he loved. And how do we know this? Well, one of the things that tells me that Jesus was affectionate was the fact that children came to him. When he wants to give an illustration to his disciples, he says, look at this little child sitting on my knee. Well, how'd that child wind up on his knee? If he was somebody that never showed any affection, never showed any warmth to anybody, how'd that child wind up on his knee? How is it that that child was listening to his tender words? It was because he was affectionate to children. And so he was affectionate. And the Bible also says that the God the Father is affectionate, an affectionate father. He reveals his affection from beginning to end in the Bible. And I want to conclude by saying to you that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that this Father affectionately invites you to come to him. In Jesus' most famous parable, the father of the prodigal son is the picture of God the Father. He runs when his son comes back. He falls on his neck. He kisses him. He gives him the fatted calf. In every way possible, he manifests that he receives him. He affectionately embraces him. He loves him. And dear sinner friend, this is the way God will behave with you if you come to him and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that kind of a father. And dear husbands, this is the kind of Father, we are to be with our children, but this is also the kind of husband that we are to be with our wives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us these wonderful pictures in the Bible of what we are to be. We confess that we choose so many other priorities that seem important at the moment and yet destroy the very things that ought to be the most to us. And even bring us, instead of satisfaction, bring us to grief and regret. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us as husbands to remember the picture that you've given to us as what we are to be as husbands to our wives. Especially we do pray that, as we have emphasized this morning, that you would help us to show our wives that they are the very most important person in the whole world to us. We pray that you'd help us to also demonstrate this by the affection that we show unto them. Forgive us, O Lord, for the many ways in which we have fallen short of the kinds of husbands you would have us to be. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to reform, to actually show our wives that we want to improve. We pray that you would give them patience with us, that we might improve our marriages, that we might have loving relationships that we might have that deep oneness, that one flesh relationship that you speak of right in the very second chapter of the, book of, of the book of Genesis. Help us, Lord, for we are weak. We are needy. We need your help. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.